0: Before we start, I want to thank all of the Weird Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L plus.com. dot com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusilo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nord-Skog, Jake Edel, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode. Uh, it is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com/libertarians, we'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you. And now let's get started with our show. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. I am glad to be with you. And today we're going to talk a little bit about FTX. And Sam Bankman-Fried and the uh, the scandal that has taken place in the crypto world. And we're also going to talk a little bit about Elon Musk. We have not covered this or talked about it. Um, uh, my guest is the perfect person to discuss that with. He's a returning guest. He's a Young Voices contributor. His name is James Chernowski. He's a senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity, a national think tank in D.C. with 35 state chapters around the country. And he writes about Section 230, antitrust, technology, data privacy, cybersecurity, all the tech stuff, which is why we love talking to James. And uh, so that's why I wanted to have him back on the show to give us some insight into what is going on with FTX. James, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Chris. Here's what I know about FTX. There's a really funny Super Bowl commercial where Larry David said that this was all a fraud and he's never wrong about these things. So score one for Larry David once again. Uh, can you explain what FTX is and what's going on? Give us the the Reader's Digest version to start out.
1: Absolutely. So FTX is basically one of the larger cryptocurrency trading platforms in the entire world. And basically the way that had to be operationally set up is that you had uh, international components that were dealing with FTX, Uh, in one area, and then they had FTX.US that would deal with US-based transactions. This is a company that was set up in the Bahamas. But basically, this was one of the most large and successful ones out there. Its co-founder, Sam berkman fried was certainly one of the more notable personalities out there uh, that was being touted as a visionary and you name it. And basically, what ended up happening is that as the economic climate, not just in the United States, but around the world, continues to turn sour, People were looking to go and start pulling their money out of uh, any kind of you know riskier assets, whether that's securities or cryptocurrencies, and you know bringing it to cash or bonds or some other kind of instrument. And when enough people started doing that, it created a liquidity problem for FTX. Now, originally, their solution there was to seek a buyout from Binance, which is another cryptocurrency trading platform. But after getting a look under the hood and seeing the books of FTX, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more later, they pulled out of that. And then on their U.S. side, the company, ultimately, the coin that was supporting it, also tanked. And now the entire company, including the U.S. side, plus its subsidiaries, are all in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And as you're looking through some of the details of this, it's nothing short of wild in terms of the developments that are happening here. Every single day as this goes on, we're learning new information, and it's just astounding, really. And just a note your uh, phone
0: is beeping a little bit on the uh, so we can hear that kind of buzzing. Um well, yeah. Geez. There was a a, a writer uh, Gen- Gen- Genevieve Roche dector uh Genevieve. She uh she tweeted out like a list of the things that were going on. Like people were submitting expense reimbursements over chat and they'd be approved or denied by emojis. Uh Sam Bankman-Fried got a billion dollar personal loan, uh Director of Engineering got 543 million dollar loan. Very few records were kept other than chats and those were deleted, which I'm guessing is a complete no-no. Um they never had board meetings. The company was valued at 32 billion. No cash management system. No records of who was employed or not. Corporate funds were used to purchase real estate. Like, it just keeps going on and on. I mean, these are not standard practices for most business. That's how I run We Are Libertarians. I'm actually a little more organized than this. I've got a bank account, and I I think the other thing that struck out in this list, James, was there wasn't, like, a record of crypto deposited by customers on the balance sheets it was just kind of going into one central slush fund like i don't run my podcast that way and they're a 32 billion dollar company
1: no you're absolutely right and that was the problem that ultimately was coming to light with the ftx situation was at a, at the best case scenario there was a company that was grossly mismanaged in the highest order possible like it, it is crazy to think that your, your reimbursement system would get approved or denied with emojis. Like, I don't think Americans for Prosperity would be quite okay if that was how we were going about submitting our reimbursements or any company for that matter, because it's not it's not a good system of accountability or transparency uh, and setting clear understandings of what you can expect. So it's not a surprise. The personal loan to Sam Berkman-Fried was also just crazy. A billion dollars there, over half a billion dollars to his, you know, his high-level engineer there. You can't make this up. Uh, the real estate stuff, you know, came to light too recently. I believe Genevieve was also talking about that today on Twitter where it's like they had, uh, you know, over 100 million. His parents had over a 100 million dollar, uh, you know, valued thing in in the Bahamas. And it's just it raises a lot of questions as to well, how do you go and, and do that? Like professors, you know, they don't do bad, but they're not like multimillionaires either. So it definitely there's a lot of weird questions that get brought up out of this. And, you know, as a result, there are billions of dollars that people are losing out on here. I think according to the the Chapter 11 filing, the rough estimate, which is probably low uh, in terms of what that FTX owes to its top creditors, is over $3 billion, Chris. That's a lot of money. And I'm willing to bet that it's actually a lot more than that. And those are just top creditors. That's not everybody that's been involved in the process. So it's kind of crazy when you see this stuff play out the way it has been.
0: There were little signs of it, though. Last March, CME's groups, uh, Terry Duffy, called SBF a fraud, and he wasn't the only one uh, to call out some of the fraud. But they met in March, apparently, and he just knew that this was a scam. Uh, you mentioned Binance. I-, I remember that kind of being a story like they had, they had backed out of a big deal, which really hurt Binance, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what? W- What other signs were there or was this just totally out of the blue where all of a sudden if you weren't like CME Group CEO or Binance's CEO and uh, like, were you aware that FTX was a fraud? Like how widely known was this?
1: I don't think it was as widely known. I think it was more of like an in-group thing. If you're in the industry and you interact with him, then maybe you get a sense for how he operates and you know, just how genuine he is in terms of being, you know, good at operating his business and dealing with these kinds of things. Um, So in terms of, you know, the efficacy of that, you know, I think at face value from a public facing angle, kind of hard to really project that out, because as far as anyone else knew, I mean, he was like one of the crypto darlings, right? I mean, this was a guy who was on TV in front of Congress testifying, major donor to a lot of political uh, candidates as well. Um, so certainly very involved in that, very, you know, engaged in effective altruism and, and going and donating money to causes he cared about. So I think the reality is, is that it makes it a lot more difficult when this guy has so many different things going on at the same time. That kind of draws away, perhaps, from some of those underlying red flags that he had uh, at his company that, you know, I think part of the problem, too, was, as I remember reading through one of the um, coverages of this, too, and I believe they were saying that, you know, he had backdoor access to their books, which is also kind of very like uncanny. So I think that you can't help but, you know, think that it it was very difficult to spot if you're just like an honest purveyor from the outside, because it doesn't come off that way. But if you're somebody that's inside uh, the industry, and you're a little bit more critical, because you're always looking at what the competition is doing to try to improve yourself, perhaps you're a little bit more attuned to it. But you know, then the question becomes, how do you get other people to realize it? Uh, to avoid a kind of situation like what we saw unfold ultimately with FTX, I guess there's a there, there's always been a feeling of
0: invincibility around tech. Like it's it's always sort of felt like, you know, jocks had their day. Now it's the nerds' turn, uh, and which I'm all for. Uh, but if you had told me three years ago that we're questioning if Twitter will still exist in two weeks, uh, if you know like amazon will have lost a trillion dollars in value uh elon musk would lose 150 billion dollars in uh 11 months like it, the, the, mark zuckerberg and meta obviously has huge issues it, it feels like the tech bubble of invincibility's popped you've obviously got um uh the dropout uh what's her name Uh, elizabeth holmes just being sentenced to 11 years i watched that show on hulu you know bankman freed here it everybody kind of got a pass for a long time but it sort of feels like chickens are coming home to roost and and the people are starting to take a little more seriously character within these realms it's not about how good your idea is but you know, how how well you conduct business. Uh, is reality starting to kind of sink in and the industry of technology is starting to take on the, the shape of the rules of other industries?
1: Uh, perhaps that's probably A- true. And you
0: tell me, me if I'm totally wrong on that. I mean, I'm, you mm-hmm. know, maybe I'm just sort of viewing, like I grew up loving, you know, uh, it's just like the whole, what's that TV show on HBO you know, everybody loves technology. We—I'm of an age where we all wanted to like change the world and invent something new, but now it just sort of feels like I'm over these people.
1: Yeah, I, I think that you're—you're. You're so, I think I certainly think that there's some credence to what you're saying in terms of uh, things coming home to roost, and these technology companies certainly uh, feeling the brunt force of that too. These companies have been wildly successful, and they have been for many years. But, you know, we did just come out of a pandemic where we did go and shut down the, a lot of the country and a lot of the world uh, did for an extended period of time. So what ended up happening was, is that a lot of things were facilitated through many of these technology companies online and they saw super normal profits that they otherwise might not have seen in regular times because everything was getting facilitated through them. And they made investments accordingly to grow their businesses. And uh, it's coming home to roost for them in that sense, too, because, as the economic climate continues to look more sour, as we're looking towards Q1 of 2023, um, these companies are making projections that, you know, they have to go and adjust accordingly. So we've seen workforce reductions at Meta. When Elon Musk took over Twitter, he laid off over half of the force, right? Uh, Amazon laid off 10,000. FedEx laid off 10,000 or furloughed 10,000 of their workers. And then another one today just announced a layoff, too. Um and, and you know when you add up all these jobs that have been laid off in the tech sector alone, it adds up to over 120,000 jobs. And that's more than when the dot-com bubble originally burst back in the early 2000s, which I don't think people realize just how big of a deal that was back when. And these jobs, they were high paying um, that we're seeing in the tech sector, like notoriously, that was why they were so attractive. And as people are getting other jobs that aren't paying as much, I expect that we'll continue to see more pain be inflicted here. So these companies are all in the process of having to readjust to a new normal, if you will, uh, of a life removed from COVID as we get further and further away from the pandemic. Yeah, they just
0: sort of feel like they're not invincible and they actually do have to start making a profit <laughs>
1: Can't just operate
0: yeah. on, a, on a loss.
1: No, you can't do that indefinitely, right? I mean, you are what you can afford to be, and many of these companies made decisions where they ultimately could not afford that. Uh, actually, the most recent one was at uh, Disney with Bob Chapek. He got removed as CEO, and they brought back in Bob Iger um, because he was he was good and brought a lot of growth to the company. And as a result, that's why they went and brought him back. They felt like he would be better than Chapek. Um, and, and, again, you can't really afford that in this kind of an economy. So that's why we're going to continue to see changes like this until we see that new normal stabilize in this new economy in 2023, where you know there's a possi- very real possibility of a recession when you're looking at just the sheer amount of job loss coupled with those interest rates and everything else going on.
0: So do you think that the the softness in the technology sector starts to kind of kill off or lessen the desire for some of the big tech
1: regulation? I mean, I would only hope so. I would like it to be that way just because I think that we've put so much emphasis on the technology companies to your point at, at that question where we, we make them bigger than God. We put them on a pedestal. We think that they're impervious to anything. And just in the last year alone, you know, Meta lost over 800 billion in, 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 in its valuation in the market cap, right? Amazon has lost money. Google is shrinking in terms of its share of the ad tech sector, right? A lot of these companies are struggling. So I think that at some in some way, you can't help but think that it it gets limited. Um, and some of these these uh, legislative proposals get undermined because if you were, for example, looking at one of the major antitrust bills, like ICOA, uh, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, which is sponsored by Senator Klobuchar, right? Part of the reason that bill was designed was to go explicitly after meta and now that company wouldn't even meet the revenue requirements to get into compliance there. And you know, so then why why is the bill there? Like, the very companies that you're targeting, if you're a conservative like Twitter, like Facebook, they're, they are a shell of what they were. And in Twitter's case, it might even be changing for the better. So supporting legislative things that would create lock-in effects and empower regulators who are by no means going to always support a conservative agenda, you know, it's not in your best interest. I, I hope that it's a wake-up call for them.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I'm classically liberal and a free marketeer proudly, and uh, I've always said – the market will correct this. Don't just be patient. Those who are a little more right can't give up the uh, ghost. And part of the FTX story is uh, his parents, how much money he gave to Democrats. Uh, and the political angle saying, see, this proves our point that big tech is in bed with the Democrats and it's all one cathedral and we need to fight them. Not saying that's, that there's not merit to that argument for sure. I'm just saying the the free market seems to figure this stuff out. But I think you can't separate this story just from the sheer amount of money that he was giving to Democrats. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible to ignore. Right. I mean, it wasn't a small amount of money that he was throwing at it either. When you're looking at. Just to the current president, it was like $40 million, I think, that he threw into PAC supporting him. Uh, and that doesn't include all the candidates that he supported down ballot. It was um, 70,
0: $70 million, uh, the, the executive, $70 million to political campaigns in just 18 months.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, to your point, right, it's hard to ignore that. And I hope that him engaging in that type of very aggressive uh, you know, lobbying, if you will, if anything should be a reinforcement as to why you want to be wary of regulation, because it can be captured, right? Part of that investment, if you will, of $70 million was with the hope that it could result in favorable regulations that his company could comply with, but maybe not his competitors. Um, And that was certainly something that you saw a little bit with his interactions with uh, Gary Gensler over at the SEC. And I think that you, you can't ignore that part of it, but that's why you push for more decentralization and options opening up. And one of the things that you don't want to see is the government trying to intrude in more into this space. Right. So one of the things we saw was an announcement from the New York Fed this week of them wanting to go and do a CBDC pilot with some of the major banks. And, um, you know, that's something that you can't ignore. Like that that is a real problem, I think, especially if you're worried about privacy um, concerns that come up with a central bank digital currency from the Fed. So, you know, it's really unfortunate, but I think that, you know, it sets a good lesson and a good a good warning sign for people that are operating in the space moving forward. You know, that's my hope that they get out of it in terms of the lesson.
0: Yeah, we'll have I'll have to have you back and maybe we can set this up after um, the talk about the digital currency issue, because I think that's a huge mistake um hmm. that only libertarians are going to talk about and then 20 years from now we'll be like see back
1: in this day i talked to james and i was right
0: um <laughs> th- after we've done it anyways but uh, i think uh, another piece of this is there is i'm not going to say a conspiracy theory i was I, I it's not that i didn't believe hunter's laptop it's just that i was i had the wait and see attitude i was like i don't know that the post would run this without having some clue but I don't know. It feels weird. Let's wait and see. And it ended up being true. And now people like Leslie Stahl, of all people, you know, have egg on their face. Um, so I'm always a little weary of saying, well, this is just a conspiracy theory or this isn't true. But the, the theory, James, is that FTX was f- basically laundering money for Democrats, that money was going in these relief bills to the Ukraine and was then going through FTX to Freed, who was then donating it to Democrats. And thus, the Ukrainian relief effort was coming back to the people that were passing the laws. Um, what information is there out there about this? Have you seen anything in the filings? Or is the the problem with FTX is just that the, it's all too nebulous to even track that down? What have you seen on that front?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Question And I know that that certainly was one of the early popular stories that came out, um, you know, theories that came out, rather, I should say, in light of everything going on with FTX. And the problem is that I, I at least have not seen anything uh, that would lend credence to that particular theory in question. So, you know, at least in my opinion, it doesn't hurt to be the person that's OK with sitting on the sideline and saying, wait and see, because the last thing you want to do is prop up, you know, a story that ultimately ends up being factually false or can't be corroborated in some kind of serious manner um you know similar to people that go and dunk in too early on the wrong side of the equation you referenced like the hunter Biden laptop story um many early deniers of that are certainly people that uh have the egg on their face now as we're looking back at it but you know i'd rather be safe than sorry because i wanted to you know endorse something that you know i just can't i don't see the evidence there for right now so you know it's a nice story, but there's nothing to really corroborate it at this particular juncture and nothing in the filings can really lend any evidence to that. So it's going to be hard to see. And it, it's just going to be something that we have to monitor looking forward.
0: Yeah. I don't know if it's true or not, but we'll wait and see. Um, all right. Let's talk about Elon Musk over at Twitter. Uh, I I think maybe we had you, I don't know if you remember, you've probably done a million interviews as well since the last time you were on, but I think you were on to talk about Twitter and social media and regulation boy have things changed over at twitter uh you mentioned 50 percent 88 percent of the workforce at twitter has been laid off uh in the past week and i can't imagine that they had that much bloat that you go from 7500 people to 800 people and there's not going to be significant issues i had a problem today where you know uh, someone sends you a twitter link you click it and it says switch to the app that doesn't work the app took 30 seconds to load that, you know i couldn't do the login on on twitter on the browser like it's i saw like four little problems today with with my twitter usage um do do you think that twitter just was overbloated because i keep seeing in my mentions those people just need to go he's just going to keep the best people they're going to work really hard and you're not going to see a difference because tech is just full of wasting money or you can't lose 88 percent of your workforce and not have huge problems
1: yeah i think that again that's a great question i think when you're looking at twitter um and jack dorsey even admitted as much i think again going back to my commentary where the tech sector during the pandemic kind of grew a little bit too fast probably for its own good and therefore there had to be workforce reductions in general whether whether or not elon musk ultimately bought twitter or not there was going to have to be layoffs at twitter Obviously, Elon Musk probably went a little bit farther than the board would have gone if they were still in control. Um, But those layoffs still would have happened in some degree. And Jack even acknowledged that uh, in in his own right. And he apologized to people for doing that. Um, So it's never easy. It's never fun to see people losing their jobs. We don't want to have that happen. Um, So, you know, obviously, I I hate that for anybody that was working at the company. Um, In terms of what the right workforce size is, I guess we're going to see 800 is certainly probably not the right number for a company that has hundreds, over 100 million plus daily active users uh, that might not be you know, feasible, but it's probably not where it was at at over 3000 plus employees either. So Elon, the most important thing is that he has to go and staff up accordingly and fill those positions that he lost with people either getting laid off or resigning as a result of what he was trying to do with his remaking of Twitter. So that's something that I think that we have to see. Those little things that you've mentioned, they've been there. Uh, definitely on and off for different users. I can certainly say that I know that I've had some of those problems too, and they're going to continue to be that way. Cause I think Elon is more or less breaking a lot of things and learning about it in the process. Probably not the best way to go and do a $44 billion investment, but that's what he's doing. And that's fine, I guess. Um, so like anything else, like we talked about before, we just got to preach patience and see whether or not he can go and turn this thing around. The best thing for him ultimately, in my opinion, is for him to go and identify that CEO, that he trusts, that can execute that vision for him for what he wants Musk Twitter to be um, and, and empower that person to do that for him because right now he's split between SpaceX, Tesla, and Twitter, and it's just it's not manageable, nor is it good for him. Um, so that's why I'm hoping that hopefully he can see the light here and, and adjust accordingly. Yeah, and the Boring
0: Company and the the Neuralink Company. I mean, he's he's overextended. And I know people who work with Tesla people, And what we're seeing in the media is what I've heard his management style to be, which is over over your shoulder to a crazy degree, crazy hours, pushing people to work harder than they might like in this environment of work life balance. Where let's take, you know, Spotify just took the whole week off last week, Um, you know, which is great. And I, I work for an employer that gives me a lot of extra time. It's awesome. I love it. I don't know that I would want to go work for for Elon Musk. So when you say he'd staff up, not just the ideological issues of the workforce he's trying to hire, but the work-life balance stuff. Like, do you – I love working from home. Will he be able to staff up?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think that, you know, he's eased up on the working from home thing. I know that he had a statement that he sent in an email to people uh, at Twitter being uh, very strong on wanting to see people returning to the office uh, unless they were an exceptional worker I believe was the phrasing that he used and I know that he's softened up on that or at least he softened up on his explanation for what that means. I think he just wants a, a strong accountability culture at his companies and and to your point, Elon's companies have certainly been known to be uh, very tough in terms of those kinds of working environments as to whether or not he will be able to go and fill all those roles. I don't know. It remains to be seen. Uh Again, it also, I think, is partially directed to, you know, is Elon ultimately running this company in Q2, Q3 of 2023? If yes, then maybe those staffing problems are harder because of the fact that he is who he is. And people realize that. But if it's underneath the, under, under the third party CD, uh, CEO over there, um, who's different than Elon in some very basic ways, maybe that goes a long way in towards of being able to help them with their staffing issues that they're going to be facing in the near term. So I, I think that it's not as all doom and gloom as some people would like to think it is when it comes to the company. Lots of people, especially in light of those resignations were very quick to say Twitter would be dead in 48 hours and sites still standing for now, at least. And um, I think that we need to, we need to preach patience here more than anything else and give him the the, the rope to go and figure out what makes sense for him and and also figure out what this company is going to look like for himself
0: let's talk about the the security issues uh i I will not participate in claiming that speech is security issues i I think free speech is free speech and um you you deal with that as a property owner in whatever way you deal with it. you can let Donald Trump come back on and not let alex jones come back on because of the loss of your kid um but we were promised free speech and now we're getting free speech at home like it really feels like he's kind of taking a elon musk gut level check on who should be back on the platform and who should not that's not quite exactly what he promised um do you think that uh, what do you think free speech on twitter with elon musk looks like how does that work
1: yeah, I, I think that Elon Musk is still trying to figure out what exactly free speech on Twitter looks like, because he's been all over the place when it's come to free speech on Twitter. I mean, he's claimed that he's a free speech absolutist. He's claimed that, you know, uh, recently it was you have the freedom of speech, not the freedom of reach, and that they would go and uh, deprioritize and, and suppress a lot of negative speech on Twitter or hate speech, things of that nature. Um I think it's a it's a very interesting lesson for Elon Musk and for internet users more broadly speaking to figure out you know what kinds of speech is permissible and how to handle that in terms of online engagements. Um, it, it remains to be seen. I, I, that's ultimately where it's at when it comes to Elon Musk and free speech. I think that his base goal is to essentially allow for a dissemination of a broader conversation on Twitter, which is a laudable goal, but striking that balance between having a conversation online versus having a toxic conversation online is something that uh, remains. Yeah. I
0: don't, I don't want to be on gab. I hated being on gab. I was on gab for three days and then I deleted it. I don't know if I deleted my account, but I certainly never went back because I don't want to be around racists. I don't, yeah. I don't mind the occasion, occasionally that popping up and you get to check that. But like when the platform is geared towards that, it becomes problematic. I didn't, I didn't, find parlor to be particularly racist everybody says it was it was just very conservative but I, yeah. I guess if i put you in charge of twitter the twitter safety team the security team um yeah how how where would you find that balance of toxic versus free speech
1: yeah it's a i do not envy the people that worked at twitter trust and safety for having to think through these kinds of issues every day i know uh, Vijaya uh, Gad over at Twitter who led all that was ultimately fired. and Yole, uh, who was also part of looking at how they tackle those issues, ultimately resigned. and then an op-ed in The New York Times about his experience there. I, you know, I think that it's a very hard thing to to go and navigate because speech is very subjective in terms of where exactly it falls, I think more often than not. Obviously there are some very bright red lines. Um, to your point about like racist commentary and things of that nature, um, that's certainly something where we would want to not see something like that necessarily be in a community because it would hurt the community's value to go and have bigots and racists just going around and espousing their stuff. Uh, on the flip side, though, um, to your point, talking about like the Hunter Biden laptop and how they, they handled it, perhaps that's an area where. You take a little bit more caution and you leave something like that up and you have that conversation foster online because you do want to have people discuss it or, you know, the origins of coronavirus, things that were deemed misinformation that the government has certainly had a very heavy hand in trying to job on these platforms to tackle. Um, Going as far as President Biden claiming that Facebook was killing people like that's the kind of thing that I would want to focus on is like how do we foster a conversation around these critical areas that might be getting politicized and polarized And trying to turn down the heater on that simmering conversation and just focus on on what exactly we think in terms of those kinds of issues that are that are out there that are, you know, stories of public interest. Like, I think it's okay to want to talk about, you know, COVID-19 and and uh, the Hunter Biden laptop and all those things. Um, So just trying to figure out how what that right balance looks like is where I probably want to put that 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 emphasis on while also minima- minimizing, you know, racists and, and bigots and things of that nature, yeah, which are I, not in ecosystem, right? Yeah,
0: I feel like 10 years ago, we kind of had a good balance with that kind of stuff. And they, they just, they went a little too far, which is how you ended up where we're at. Um, you you The really awful, toxic people that I remember from 10 years ago got kicked off because it was just very blatant, right? Yeah. But blatant is different than insensitive, right? Like, yeah and the more we've pushed the blatant off and then started to push the insensitive off we haven't solved the problem by you know limiting speech it's just the people who are borderline insensitive aren't getting checked and the, oh by the way their behavior would change if they found that yeah. it wasn't socially acceptable you know and i think you make a great point with like the hunter biden story i mean zuckerberg saying that they deprioritized that story uh, we just did an episode on jawboning um with the young voices contributor uh, to kind of dive into that because uh, you know something like vitamin D helps COVID nineteen. John Campbell on YouTube was talking about that in May of 2020, right? Like that that just got a verified. There's just been a lot of stuff, James, that these platforms have cracked down on that two years later is verified by a study, and I think it just makes people so leery because they're taking the borderline off or even just like. St- I had a Jeffrey Dahmer meme that I posted that said, this doesn't taste like five guys. And it, it got rid of my group. Right. So yeah, insensitive, not nice, but is that <laughs> really uh, worthy of killing off an entire brand?
1: Yeah. I think that you raise great points there, right? Like it's, the, the problem that I had ultimately with like Hunter Biden or COVID is that, you know, it was all done underneath the label of misinformation. And the problem with that in my mm-hmm. view is that since the nexus of misinformation surrounds speech, and that is a malleable thing when it comes to misinformation, as you highlighted, right? What we understood at the nexus of, of COVID-19 when it originally popped up versus one year in versus two years in, if we set the bar as like misinformation and we labeled it X, right, but X changed and it's no longer true fact anymore, uh, but you're imposing, let's say, liability because like someone like Amy Klobuchar wants to impose liability, and remove Section 230 protections, let's say, from a company, if it posts medical misinformation, well, guess what? Like That, that means that you're going to have less speech online overall. And I'd rather go and trust American people to go and facilitate a conversation online and ultimately make decisions in their best interests, more so than having the government get involved in that process or feel the need to go and really put their thumb on the scale uh, by flagging Fauci parody accounts or something, like you're seeing from some of the details of the uh, Missouri lawsuit against the Biden administration, right? So it's about focusing on allowing some conversations to happen because you just you, you can't control everything perfectly. And trying to have that kind of a regime ends badly for everybody. So I want to avoid those kinds of conflicts, if at all possible.
0: Yeah, it was really odd today to see uh, the White House press secretary pushing back on a reporter saying, we're not going to let you talk to Fauci about the origins of COVID-19. And they started yelling back at her. And I realized oh, for three years they've just taken the government's word as the arbiter of truth, and that's not what the press is supposed to do. But, uh, all right, I could talk about this all day with you. I think uh, you, you always bring fascinating points. On the FTX story, what, what else am I missing? Let's just hop back to it for a second. Is there anything that I should have asked that I ought to know, but I'm ignorant of the story and, and people really ought to pay attention to, the larger yeah, implications think- for them?
1: Yeah, I think it's not necessarily about FTX, but it's about the crypto industry writ large and what we can expect moving forward. Uh, Right now, we know that the House Financial Services Committee announced that they're going to have a hearing in December that looks to investigate this further. So I think that that's really the key thing that matters here with FTX. It's already done. It's happened. But what we need to focus on now is investigating and finding out how it transpired so that we can avoid it from happening in the future And making sure that we then go from there and figure out what does our education uh, look like in terms of just uh, educating consumers, because they are relatively unaware of some of this stuff, educating staffers and members of Congress and regulators and their staff. It's a big education effort. So when it comes to FTX, I think that, you know, that's going to continue to develop and we're going to get it piecemeal by piecemeal. So it's something that we'll have to monitor and talk about as we learn more and, you know, Don't go and punish crypto because of the bad actions of one particular person in Sam Berkman Fried and his company. Uh, It's, you know, they definitely did something that was bad, but there's already existing criminal law there. That was possibly violated, and that's worth going down in terms of enforcement, over going and destroying a completely new industry here. So that's really the big thing that I would want to impress upon your viewers as they're looking at the craziness of what's happened with FTX now and caring about the future of cryptocurrency, more broadly speaking. So do you think that this will be used as a
0: justification, which they've been looking for more and more justifications to regulate the industry?
1: Oh, 100 percent. I mean, if you're somebody that's a crypto skeptic and you want to go and, uh, you know, punish people and ban crypto mining or, uh, you know, limit the ability to go and leverage crypto in some kind of fashion, when you see things like this occur, it goes and basically feeds your narrative. Right. Um, And he's an egregious example, not representative of the the overarching industry in and of itself. Um, So that's why it's unfortunate. Right. I think that we don't want to lend credence to those kinds of uh, arguments because of one bad person and it's also early enough where we don't want to cut off potential use cases because we regulate it to such a point where we are basically locking in what you can and cannot do when it comes to business operations and crypto and how you want to formulate companies around that whole industry in general so that that would be unfortunate but there are definitely going to be calls for that at a minimum i would expect to see like stable coin kind of legislation possibly popping up uh you know probably in the next Congress, realistically speaking. But that's that's at least at a minimum what I would anticipate to see.
0: Would you keep your crypto in a Coinbase or a Binance at this point after the haircuts that have taken place?
1: Yeah, I have no problem holding my my cryptocurrency in, in, in any of those uh, platforms. But I also am perfectly aware of the risks. And uh, I'm not going to offer investment advice to people, but that's, that's all I say to, to folks on that front, is just be sure that you are aware of what exactly you are buying into and what levels of risk you are comfortable with and, you know, act accordingly, right? I I feel perfectly confident with my Coinbase wallet uh, that I have where I hold crypto assets and I'm not going to go and pull anything out just because of what's happened with FTX. All
0: right, James, shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow you and find out more?
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, So you can follow me on Twitter at JamesCZ19 or you can go to the Young Voices website at Young Voices, Young Uh, dash voices.com to go and keep track of the latest uh, news hits and stuff that I do. And I have a personal website at jameschamowski.com. Happy to always have a conversation about any of these topics with anybody, anytime. So thanks for having me, Chris. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, James. And
0: thank you to everybody listening. Again, if you learned something, then please share it with your friends and your family and let them know that there is a great resource for good information like this. It's how you show appreciation for any content creator. Share their stuff. Thanks so much for listening to The Chris Spangle Show, and we will see you again soon.